I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover Down the Mississippi, a national call-in show about identity and culture, challenges and solutions. Today, we've come south to the studios of Iowa Public Radio in Iowa City. The Iowa River is just a few blocks from here. It winds through miles of farmland before it meets the Mississippi. And that farmland is at the heart of our conversation today. What happens here in the fields and the farms of Iowa has an effect on the Mississippi River and its watershed all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. But the country needs the crops that Iowa produces. How do we find the right balance? A conversation today with guests and with your input. I'd like to hear from you about how your part of the Mississippi River is changed or connected to the agricultural ecology on this end of the watershed. Do you work a farm? Do you work in the farm economy here in Iowa? How concerned are you about what's flowing downstream? And if you live and work outside of Iowa, is your town seeing a difference because of what's happening here in Iowa? So, Iowa farmers, this is a conversation for you. For everyone else along the Mississippi River and its watershed, how do you think you're being affected by what's happening here in Iowa? Here's the phone number, 183-FLYOVER1. You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. It's 183 Flyover One. Tweet in at Carrie NPR. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. We're starting today with two reporters who know Iowa quite well. Clay Masters is with us. He's host of Morning Edition and a reporter for Iowa Public Radio. And with me here in Iowa City, welcome. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Kate Payne is with us. She's a reporter for Iowa Public Radio. She covers eastern Iowa. Kate, really good to have you here. Thanks so much. Clay, um, just in the several days that we've been talking about the Mississippi and its watershed, I've gotten this sense of how inextricably connected we are, but how siloed parts of the river are. And I think we're going to hear that again today from people who say, well, my part of the river is being affected by what they're doing up there in Iowa. What's your sense of that interconnection, but that push-pull about how each part of the river uses the river and affects the river? Well, certainly here in Iowa, there is a, a lot of concern about just the agricultural landscape and the impact that farm runoff is having on the river and downstream. The Gulf of Mexico, we talk about the dead zone all the time. Iowa and agriculture, one of the leading causes of the dead zone. And so there's a lot of uh, siloing that seems to happen between urban and rural Iowa here. Uh, there's a lot of concern uh, from urban centers about what's going on on the farm and there's uh, an effort to have more education about uh, what is leaving these farms. Uh, but there's definitely kind of some siloing going on, as you're saying, between the, the urban and rural Iowa. Kate, you were telling me a little earlier that sometimes farmers themselves bring up the dead zone issue before you do. They're very aware of what's going on at the bottom and in the Gulf of Mexico. What do they say about it? Yeah, so I went down and spoke with a farmer the other day. His name is Rob Stout, and he's in Washington County, so southeastern Iowa. And he's one of these farmers that's doing a lot of work on conservation practices, trying to reduce what's leaving his land and going downstream. And you're right, he did. He brought up the Gulf before I did and his concern for what he is sending down there. And he says that he does think about the shrimpers uh, in the Gulf. He thinks about how they need to make a living in the same way he's trying to make a living. 
thing, and he personally doesn't want to impede that. He knows not everybody thinks that way up here, uh, but he certainly wants to be able to reduce his impact. The other thing he told you is, I'm willing to be involved in this, but people have to understand what this means for somebody like me who has a really tight margin. What do you want to say about this before we hear from Rob? Yeah, so cost for the farmer is always going to be a concern, especially when a number of these practices don't have an immediate positive impact on yield. Sometimes the practices can actually reduce yield for farmers' crops. And so farmers think about a lot of different issues of why they shouldn't move into these practices. And Rob and I spoke about that. Let's hear from Rob Stout right here. It's, it's fear of change. One more added step. People are busy. Uh, crop margins are really, really tight right now. The prices of corn and beans aren't good. <laughs> so uh, that keeps people from doing it. When he says it keeps people from doing it, he's saying we really just can't afford to do this. So who steps in to help us with the the accounting on this? Absolutely. And so for Rob himself, he told me he's spending about $18,000 a year on cover crops. Wow. Not everybody has $18,000 a year. That's tremendous. Uh, and there are cost share programs uh, through state funding, federal funding, but farmers are still expected to pay sometimes half of the cost of these programs, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. But Clay, I was at the forum that you held last night at a local brewery here, and one of the farmers on your panel was putting some numbers up against what Kate is talking about. He was saying... I could lose $40 an acre on doing some of the things, I think including the cover crops, mm -hmm. right, that, that they want us to do and that we know are necessary. But who's going to help with that? Right. And quick definition here, cover crops, when we talk about it, this is a, another kind of crop that is planted in the off season so that you know there are more roots in the ground and they're able to, to keep more of the, the natural nutrients there locked in the soil. And it, it's a big cost. This is something that if, if it doesn't pencil out, they're not going to want to do. But a lot of times you talk with farmers who have made the change in Iowa, and certainly I've talked with them over the last five or six years, and they're seeing it as, you know, it, it's not just the, the year, how much money they're going to make. It's a generational thing and wanting to make sure that that land can be passed on to the next person. So, you know, if you're sending all your soil downstream or you're, you're not taking good care of the land, it's not going to be there for generations to come. Let me take some calls here. Let's go to Dee Dee in Sully, Iowa. So, Dee Dee, for my information, where is Sully, Iowa? Uh, we're between Newton and Pella. <laughs> okay, I do know where Pella, no. Iowa is. Tell me what you're okay. thinking about here. Okay. Well, we live in the country for well over 30 years, um, and we've seen a lot of changes take place on the land and within farm families around us. Um, I guess it's, it's very apparent to us that many farmers have achieved a lot of success over the years. Um, many have built new homes, bought bigger machinery. Uh, most drive nice SUVs and trucks. Uh -huh. um, but unfortunately, I guess we have not seen uh, improved land stewardship, and we haven't seen many conservation practices enacted. In fact, we still see acres of trees being taken down and marginal land being farmed. Um, also see many chemicals being applied to fields. Um, I don't know. It's just it's very disturbing to us, and uh, we're right out here in the middle of it. We, we see it all every day. Really um, good to I know have your call. Yes, I know there's some farmers that are 
trying their best, but um, I definitely think there needs to be some mandates. So, Didi, really good to have the call. And, Clay, I hear Didi saying, sure, um, I hear about how difficult this may be financially, but I'm seeing indications that plenty of farmers could have room to do this. And, and a lot of the, the leading scientists and researchers in the state would say we're nowhere near where the state needs to be to reduce the loads that are going down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, five years ago, the state, former Governor Terry Branstad, along with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Agriculture, uh, Iowa State University, they put out the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy. And this is a, a list of different things like planting cover crops, uh, other uh, buffer strips, uh, bioreactors, ways to uh, reduce the amount of chemicals leaving. And uh, the thing that is the most contentious point of that is that these are voluntary efforts. There are cost-sharing programs like Kate was talking about. But as Didi was referencing, leading researchers are saying Iowa is nowhere near it should, where it should be to uh, make the kind of gains that it needs to. One of the other things that Rob talked to you about, Kate, Rob Stout, again, this uh, farmer that you spoke with in eastern Iowa, mm-hmm was, um, well, I can't be the guy that does it all myself. So where are, are all the other farmers who join together who make a big difference with this? Let's listen to what he had to say. I want to see other people to do it, too. I don't want to be just an island here. And I'm not, but I, I don't, you know, I, I'd like everybody to do it. Everybody to be no-tilling and using cover crops and, and doing the best job of conservation we can. So it's, it's good for everybody. Does he feel a little lonely in this effort, do you think? So where Rob Stout is in Washington County, there are actually a number of different farmers who are working on a number of different practices to improve conservation. Um, When you look across the state, though, it's just the scale of how much needs to be done versus what is being accomplished. State officials will say we are having more interest, more farmers coming to field days, learning about what they can do. But the numbers I saw recently, it's 4% of the state's farmland grows cover crops, 4%. It's just not enough, researchers say. You're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi from NPR News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. We are in Iowa City today in the studios of Iowa Public Radio talking about the effect that agriculture has Uh, on the Mississippi River and the idea that what happens here in Iowa, what happens up there in our our normal stomping grounds of Minnesota really matters to what flows downstream and ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll be in New Orleans tomorrow. We'll do a show at noon and a town hall about some solutions tomorrow from New Orleans. I want to hear from you as farmers who are hearing, feeling the pressure to make some changes, hearing the concerns and the complaints about this, and then anyone else who lives along the Mississippi River and the watershed. Here's the phone number, 183-FLYOVER-1. You can tweet me at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio, 183-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover Down the Mississippi from NPR News in collaboration with Iowa Public Radio and WWNO in New Orleans. We're in Iowa Public Radio today in Iowa City and having a conversation about how agriculture and practices here 
affect the Mississippi River and its watershed wherever you are, and looking to hear your own experience and your concerns along the Mississippi. 183-FLYOVER1. You can tweet me at Carrie NPR. I want to bring in two new guests now to Jamie Benning. She's Water Quality Program Manager with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach and with us from Des Moines. And Jamie, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be with you. Sarah Carlson is with us. She's Strategic Initiatives Director at Practical Farmers of Iowa. She's also with us from Des Moines. And Sarah, welcome to you. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Sarah, um, I ran across a statistic that was pretty eye-opening to me. Of course, you're familiar with this, but more than one-third of the country and a lot of the farms in the Midwest drains into the Mississippi. Now, I understand that farmers need to be conservationists, right? They rely on the productivity of the land. But how do you talk to farmers about what is happening downriver, especially when you bring the finances in, as we were hearing from Kate and Clay? Right. Yeah, we we definitely want to talk about the dollars and cents of this. So when Rob mentioned earlier, you know, he's spending $24,000 on cover crops, then we have to think, how are we going to save $24,000 in herbicide costs, in pesticide costs, and some other costs that we have so that we can make the cover crop break even. And that's been work that we've been doing with Iowa State over the past couple years and really changing our message that, sure, cover crops are great for water quality, they're good for reducing soil erosion, they're great for reducing nitrate loss, but they also have to be good for business. And so we have to step up our game and figure out a way to make it break even in the system. Uh, Kate, or, or, um, Jamie, is that is that the um, I guess the push pull of this, where you bring in a lot of special interests from politics and farmers, and why for a lot of people this feels like there has not been enough progress? Is that part of the reason? Well, part of it, sure. Um, we've we've had the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy uh, in place for five years. Uh, we track progress of that each year. And, you know, according to a few scenarios that we have established um, in terms of the numbers of practices and the changes on the landscape that we need to see, um, we're not there yet. But we wouldn't expect to be in a short time. Uh, it's a four to six billion dollar um, effort to to reach those goals, and and we haven't had that level of funding yet. Uh, I feel like we we are making uh, we are making progress. We're moving in the right direction. Uh, we're we're laying some groundwork in terms of education and outreach and uh, developing understanding around the practices and and truly the scale that we will need to to have in terms of uh, practices on the ground and changes on the land. Um, so. You know, I I can understand frustrations that, it, but this isn't something that will change overnight. It's it's a I, very large uh, issue that we're dealing with. I'm really glad you brought up scale because before we re- we go back to the phone lines here, Clay, I was reading about the most recent uh, bill that passed the Iowa State Legislature to address this. I believe it came in at 242 million dollars. Is that right? Right. And there were a lot of complaints that that is a drop in the ocean for what's needed. Right. There are concerns about funding levels, uh, certainly, and then also just uh, any kind of accountability for what's happening once these kinds of practices are being done. You know, how are we monitoring it? Uh, There's a lot of good work that happens in the state. Uh, Certainly, Practical Farmers of Iowa is uh, familiar with the the kind of monitoring that goes on. Also, uh, the Iowa Soybean Association keeps a lot of track on this, but you, you can't readily 
understand how you know the, the money is being used uh, for you know it, to, to be able to compare uh, how much money is being spent on these things and how much that is lightening the load and perhaps our guests can correct yeah. me on that yeah, good. so accountability may I come back to that because we have so many people that want to get in on yeah. this we'll, we'll talk about it in a second to James in Wisconsin hi James are you a farmer there Hi, Carrie. Yes, I'm an organic vegetable farmer in Amory, Wisconsin. Uh, we're in Good to the Saint. Yeah, we're in the Saint Croix Valley watershed, which does actually flow into the Mississippi, uh, so it's relevant mm-hmm. that way. Right. But I want to question one of your opening comments, which suggested that we need the crops that are being produced in Iowa. Uh, in fact, most of the crops being produced in Iowa are commodity row crops, which um, are generally overproduced in this country, which leads to very low prices, and in fact, a lot of those commodities, especially since NAFTA, uh, are shipped overseas and, and uh, dumped, the word is dumping, onto economies where it actually makes those uh, those countries less capable of producing their own crops because we dump the cheap crops on them. And furthermore, uh, the question for the need of these crops uh, is open to me. A lot of these crops, of course, corn is being used to produce, produce non-food uh, uses like ethanol, and moreover, the food that is produced by corn and soy is often turned into processed food, uh, which is not healthy for people to be eating. So yeah, I James, question I, I, the, I, the need yes. for those crops. Okay, uh, points for being a really close listener, because you're right. I said, and we need the food that Iowa produces. What about that argument, Sarah? What would you say, that there's a lot of dumping and there's overproduction and maybe the environmental issues that we face wouldn't be as acute if if Iowa produced less? So over the last 100 years, Iowa has grown about 60% of our landscape in corn, and previous to the ethanol boom, we fed it to livestock overwhelmingly, um, and we still do that today. But we made a big shift in what the crop opposite corn is. So to the caller's point, we do need more diversity on the landscape that has a living root in the ground year-round. So previous to the 70s, when we made a shift from small grains and alfalfas and hay on the landscape opposite corn, which are plants mm-hmm. that grow in the wintertime, we shifted to soybeans opposite corn, and soybeans grow at the same time as corn. So today we only have four months of roots really living and growing and sucking up nitrogen and holding soil in place. And so we're not open for business the rest of the year. Our soils are basically fallow. So whether we're going to turn it into ethanol or turn it into biogas in the future or use it to feed livestock, we need to be open for business in the wintertime. And we need to find markets for those plants, for those crops. So cover crops, uh, perennial grasses on the landscape like the Strips Project out of Iowa State. Um, you know, we need more cattle on the landscape that will eat more hay. So we need more diversity out there. Um, and whether we turn that into something that's a commodity or something that's a food product or something that's for energy, it doesn't matter. But we need year-round constant cover, and we need to find yeah. markets to support that, to pull farmers th- to do that. I hear that. Um, I think we're probably going to hear from some people today who have concerns about livestock farming as well. Clay, where does that fit into this? Yeah, there's there are concerns about uh, livestock farming. Uh, Iowa is a the biggest producer of pork, so there's a lot of what we call CAFOs, which are confined animal feeding operations. Uh, it is the argument that gets made regularly from uh, livestock producers, from from 
pork producers is that these are much more regulated. Uh, it's, it's a much more regulated industry than uh, the non-point polluters of, you know, row crop agriculture. But it's definitely a concern that many people in the state have is what's leaving those CAFOs. Somebody here that I, I think wants to speak to livestock, to Joel in Lansing. Uh, Joel, is that Lansing, Michigan? No, Lansing, Iowa. In Lansing, Iowa. Okay, sorry about that. Don't know my Iowa Iowa geography. Tell me, you wanted to raise Um, this issue of of livestock production, right? um, Yeah. I mean, over the last, I'm I'm a 59-year resident of the state of Iowa and uh, grew up near the Wapsie-Pinnacan River, um, but now live in Lansing only three blocks from the Mississippi River. Um, but yeah, I have a concern about all the hoglots that there are, um, typically one or two sets of three buildings per square mile, um, in a lot of central Iowa and eastern Iowa is a lot of dairy, but, you know, the affluent from those hoglots and from the beef lots. Um, a couple of years ago, it was mentioned that the Iowa River was one of the four most polluted rivers in the nation because of, of runoff from affluent. Yeah, Joel, I mean, this has been a huge issue in Minnesota, too, and it has. there's been difficulty in coming to a solution that everybody can get behind. Jamie, how does that—where are we at on— on some of these concerns around livestock livestock production and accountability of sure. uh, is so, it is it more regulated? It is. So in Iowa, our um, livestock operations that are 500 animal units or larger need to have a manure management plan. Uh, those farmers need to go through um, what's called the Iowa Phosphorus Index, which assesses their risk. Uh, for losing phosphorus um, after they apply manure. So what that does is it gives them a a risk index and they can take a look at some other practices that might reduce that risk and they can uh, adopt those practices, install them, such as uh, maybe buffers or setbacks um, from streams or rivers and, uh, you know, potentially reduce rates, uh, inject that manure versus applying it on the surface. There's many uh, different uh, ways that uh, manure can be applied so that it's utilized to its best potential. So it's uh, as much as possible is retained in the soil and and utilized for the the following crop. And um, the the nutrient reduction strategy addresses that as well. Uh, but I do want to make sure that we're we're not thinking that this is just a fertilizer issue. It's it really okay, is good. an entire system. Uh, challenge that we have. So, Meaning uh, fertilizer, what specifically? Sure. So fertilizer application and manure application is, is part of the issue. But um, with the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy, the science team looked at the suite of practices that we have available. And if we adjust our, our timing and rates of, of nitrogen uh, down to university recommended rates, if, if that farmer isn't using that already, um, yeah. taking a look at applying as close to when the crop needs it as possible or even within the season, uh, such as using a side dress application, that really only gets us about 10 to 15 percent um, of the way to our 41 percent reduction goal, which is wow. the goal for non-point source uh, uh, sources of nitrate, nitrogen uh, for the for farmers. So for and 41 percent reduction by when? What's the deadline on that? 
so we don't have a deadline in Iowa um, that we're following huh. the the uh, goals set for us by the hypoxia task force, but we have not uh, adopted a specific uh, deadline in Iowa. Okay. Jamie Benning with us from Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, and Sarah Carlson with us from Practical Farmers of Iowa, and Clay Masters, uh, who usually is in Des Moines, but is with me in Iowa City at Iowa Public Radio. As we have a conversation today on our special flyover series about agriculture, what it means to the Mississippi River, what it means to the rest of the country, what it means if you live at the bottom of the Mississippi near the Gulf of Mexico, and how interconnected the Mississippi River and the watershed is, but how often we think about our own ecologies. And uh, that's why we're headed to New Orleans tomorrow. We have a show coming out of New Orleans and then a town hall in La Rose, Louisiana. You'll hear that on Friday. Let me go back to the phones to Taylor, who I think is a livestock farmer. Is that right, Taylor? Yes. Uh, yeah. We're a small organic uh, dairy farm. Um, we uh, we have about 2,000 feet of frontage on the Mississippi, or uh, the Root River, which drains into the Mississippi near uh, Brownsville, Minnesota. Um, okay. and, and we've been planting cover crops for, uh, oh gosh, many years, um, well over 15 years. Um, and we, we only grow a small, uh, acreage of corn, uh, just to feed, feed our animals. Um, but we hear a lot of these, uh, big crop guys, uh, you know, they don't want to do cover crops because it, it causes a, uh, reduction in yields and the, there's some cost to it. Um, but the corn is worth virtually nothing and they want more for their, their crops. Well, if you're going to implement implement cover crops you're going to get a reduction in your yield which in the long run is going to lessen the uh, supply of corn the demand Uh is going to rise and you're going to end up getting more for your crop i i don't see why they have such a problem with spending which is virtually a small amount of money to do this to get started with it to end up with more money in the long run I, I, I'm really glad you called because I think we're getting a sense, again, as what I was saying, the push-pull of different interests here. Clay, do you first on that, and then I'll go to Sarah on, on this. Well, you know, and we're talking a lot about downstream impact as well. There are concerns within the state of Iowa. There was a really high-profile lawsuit that was working through the courts for a number of years here. Uh, the Des Moines Water Works sued drainage districts in northwest Iowa, saying they were contributing to uh, high levels of nitrates that Des Moines had to uh, then treat and supply to its more than 500,000 customers mm-hmm. uh, that was thrown out. But there are not only concerns downstream, but there are concerns within the state as to the impact of agriculture in some of the more urban areas. And, you know, there was an Iowa State University uh a survey that came out recently that said, you know, over half of the farmland in the in the state is owned by someone who does not currently farm. And so there's there's there are the conversation just needs to keep happening between uh, between farmers, between landowners. It's just it, it's kind of never ending. Uh, Sarah, when Taylor talks about the economics of this and says, I don't understand why if farmers planted less, the crops would be worth more and why the economics don't work out for them. What's the answer to that? 
Well, I'd say today, you know, we're still in the game of like high yields. We want to talk about that. We want to share with our buddies about what great yields we got. And so we can't have cover crops <laughs> compromising yield. We can't have cover crops compromising yield. And so like research of practical farmers with the Iowa Learning Farms from Iowa State over 10 years has shown when we know how to manage corn correctly after a cereal rye cover crop, we don't compromise yield. And at eight years, we start to increase yield. And on the soybean side, right out of the gate, we can increase yield a portion of the time, and we never have negative yield on soybeans following a cereal rye cover crop. So I don't want to compromise yield either because that's what people get all excited about. But really in Taylor's voice, what I hear is that, you know, could we afford to displace a million acres worth of corn and soybeans and grow something different? Yes, Mm -hmm. we probably could grow small grains in rotation that then we would use for cover crop seed that would cover 16 million acres in Iowa, or we could feed it to livestock. So like to the livestock question earlier, um, you know, livestock could be our solution to this whole problem. We have a lot of pigs. We could have more dairy and uh, live ruminant livestock, and they can eat crops that are grown in the wintertime. And to Jamie's point on the fertilizer issue, you know, if fertilizer management only improves us single digit wise, but roots in the ground year round, cover crops, diverse rotation, pasture, improve our water quality 30 to 40 to sometimes 60 percent, we could get there like not overnight, but pretty close to overnight if we could just feed this stuff to more livestock. We've got the animals. I mean, we could really just, do that. I have about a minute, but Sarah, I want to make sure I heard you right. You were, it sounded like you were saying, there's, um, you know, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of pride invested in the idea that your crops yield X amount and nobody really wants to step back from that. Again, it might not just all be all about economics. It's also about kind of saving face. Did I hear that right? Sure. Yeah. We want high uh, yields. Clay? Yeah, you heard it right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> farmers pride themselves in uh, their land and their, you know, this is going to be something that's going to take a lot of cultural change and it's not as fast as people want it to be. You're listening to Flyover. We are at Iowa Public Radio in Iowa City today. It's a collaboration all week with NPR News, Iowa Public Radio and WWNO in New Orleans. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover Down the Mississippi, a collaboration between NPR News, Iowa Public Radio, and WWNO in New Orleans. Tomorrow, we'll be in New Orleans. We'll be talking about basically the culmination of a week on the Mississippi River. What happens at the bottom of the river near the Gulf when all of the challenges that we've been talking about all week end up there? And then a town hall in La Rose, Louisiana, and you'll hear that on Friday. Today, agriculture in Iowa with our guest Sarah Carlson, Strategic Initiatives Director of Practical Farmers of Iowa, and Jamie Benning, Water Quality Program Manager with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, and Clay Masters, who's a reporter and a host here at Iowa Public Radio. I'm getting a lot of questions about drain tile. Let me go to the Uh, A a listener here on Twitter is saying, please don't miss the impact of field tile. First, it's expensive and farmers do it without subsidies. Second, 
It's a main line for nutrients into the watershed. Third, it mutes the effectiveness of buffer strips. Clay, to you first, and then we'll take a call on that. Yeah, tile drains, a lot of times you see them moving down uh, interstates or highways in Iowa, or you see them stacked up by the side of the road. They're these big, for lack of a better term, just big tubes that get put underneath the ground. So when the water falls, I mean, northwest Iowa, years and years ago, you, you... you couldn't farm on it, so they needed a way to control the water. And so farmers have this intricate system of tiling uh, underneath their farm that then leads into ditches and then immediate, you know, eventually winds up in the rivers. So that, that's what they're referring Let to. Let me take a call on that to Travis in Cedar Rapids. Hi, Travis. Thanks for waiting. No problem. Um, what, I'm yeah, a, what's your question? An Ohio native. Uh, yeah, Ohio native moved to Iowa and dealing with the water drainage issue in Lake Erie, and then I come out here and hear the same conversation. I've really wondered about how much drainage tile is actually in place in the state of Iowa, and how is this playing into the bigger picture? I hear the conversation being focused on surface runoff, and yet the amount of water that comes out of the drainage tiles is significant, especially during big storms. Okay, and we also got a call here, I think, from Dan in Missouri, who was saying, I live a mile from the Mississippi. Iowa has so much tiling that drains into waterways, hundreds of thousands of tiles. Jamie, is that true? It's true, yes. You know, millions of acres of Iowa um, is tile-drained, artificially drained, um, using subsurface drainage tile. the Des Moines lobe or north central Iowa from Des Moines and north uh, is one of the most concentrated areas of the state of tile drainage, but it certainly exists elsewhere where we have uh, soils that are slow to drain. And um, with that additional drainage, there's, there's economic reasons why uh, farmers choose you know, to install that drainage tile. Um, on one hand, it, you know, it, it does allow that, that water to move and, and when soil um, you know, is is warm and uh, nitrates are mineralizing, it moves through uh, the soil with water. It's a dissolved nutrient and moves with that tile water. Um, but it also helps um, on the other side with uh, minimizing the amount of surface water that's running over the surface. So mm. it mm-hmm. keeps that soil uh, drained and ready to take in additional water. It uh, can minimize some of the, the surface runoff that, that's occurring that would take mostly sediment and phosphorus with it. There's not as much nitrate that moves on the soil surface. It's, it's more of a soil and phosphorus um, issue. So there's trade-offs with it. Um, it also presents us with an opportunity to install uh, practices such as bioreactors, uh, saturated buffers, and wetlands that encourage denitrification and uh, take that, that tile water that is higher in in nitrates than our streams and reduces that. Um, Those practices, you know, reduce between 40 and 60 percent of the nitrate and and with wetlands has additional benefits as well to wildlife and and aesthetics. Uh, So, so so Jamie, challenges and opportunities. Yeah. Can I just jump in here, though? So Bruce is not right when he tweets that it's a main line for nutrients into the watershed. You're saying that the tile does not does not contribute to the way that nutrients, fertilizers, et cetera, chemicals are flowing into the river. He also added that it, you were talking about those buffer strips. He says that it 
diminishes the effectiveness of, of the strips. Is that right? Sure. So so on the, the side of the, the buffer strips, um, as I mentioned, saturated buffers is a practice that takes those uh, buffers that are along the stream edge. And in our tile drainage systems, typically there would be a tile that is running through those buffers underneath, okay. not allowing that water to interact with the buffer. And with a saturated buffer, we put in essentially a, a T-intersection to that tile in a control box, a control structure that, that moves that water through the buffer. So then the microbes are working in the soil and, and there's an environment for denitrification to occur. And we get the surface water uh, protection or benefit of that buffer, uh, minimizing our loss of sediment and phosphorus. And then through that saturated buffer component, we're also removing uh, nitrate. And, and they're uh, lower cost and, and very effective, but they don't work everywhere. So Sarah, how... Yeah. So, Sarah, how do I mean, we're hearing a lot of concern from people that are on the, I guess, receiving end of the effects of drain tiling, field tiling. Um, How do farmers here think about it? I I hear what Clay said about there was an area of Iowa that never could have been farmed if not for this this kind of technology. Yeah, I mean, we're going to need tile drainage to be able to farm really luscious soils of Iowa and to drain the water off, and which reduces phosphorus, like Jamie brought up. That's a really important point to think about. And they are loaded with nitrogen at certain times of the year, nitrates. So we need to evaluate which soils are loading the most, which will be up the north-central part of the state. And then if we stick a green cover after corn and soybean harvest on the ground, overwintering through the spring, we will drop the nitrates in that tile by 30 to 40%. And so then they're not a huge pipe full of nitrogen. That nitrogen is left in the field, in that dead rye biomass, and then it's going to build soil over time. So like the buffer law in Minnesota um, paired with cover crops Mm -hmm. would be, you know, a good way to avoid a lot of loss. And the buffer law in Minnesota, for example, you know, is only going to deal with that overland flow of phosphorus and not address nitrogen, which is one of the biggest issues on the lush soils of the rest of the state. So you, you've like, raised that's a really what good question here. Us. Yeah. So, Clay, last night in your panel, this came up. Why can't Iowa have the kind of buffer? And I'm not saying it wasn't hard to get it passed through the state legislature, but why can't Iowa do what Minnesota's doing on this? Well, right now, uh, the Iowa legislature uh, controlled both House and Senate by Republicans, a Republican governor. Uh, they're not showing interest in, in regulating uh, what kind of uh, on-farm practices uh, are going to happen. You know, there was a, there's was there been a lot of talk about, we keep talking about the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy. Right. There's been a lot of talk over the years about making that not voluntary, but forcing that upon farmers. And you get a lot of pushback from large ag industry saying, you know, this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of situation. And last night at the panel, people were saying, you know, the buffer strips wouldn't help reduce the way that cover crops would. And so, I mean, it's a challenge to get more buy-in if there's not any kind of, you know, regulation aside from uh, the voluntary approach. So, Sarah, just just a question here before I take another call. How do the practical farmers feel about it being mandatory, not voluntary? Well, we feel it's voluntary but not optional, right? So... Uh. I am hesitant on a regulatory process because I see, like in other states, like in Ohio, a fertilizer regulation. And like managing fertilizer differently is only going to be a 9 to 10 percent improvement. So I think we can get there if we talk about the bottom line. 
What's good for water quality can be good for the bottom line, but we need to work with farmers and ag industry to promote practices like cover crops that can control weeds better in the system, can break pest cycles in the system, and can actually be good for growing better corn and soybeans and improve water quality. What I think I heard you say there, though, was um, what we want to do is persuade farmers ourselves that this is not optional. They should do it. But we don't want some law telling us that we have to do it. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Let me grab a call here from Sonia in Minneapolis. Sonia, thank you so much for waiting. I know it's been a while. We've had, had a lot of people from Iowa on the line. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What do you want to say? Uh, I, I wanted to comment. I'm a member of a, a group called Dodge County Concerned Citizens in southeastern Minnesota. Our family farm in Dodge County is surrounded by 11 and soon a 12th swine factory farm in a three-mile wow. radius. People hmm. have no idea how serious the problem is with these factory farms. Our farm sits at the headwaters of the Cedar River, which flows south to Austin, Minnesota. And, of course, as people know, that's the world headquarters of Hormel Corporation. And then the Cedar River eventually flows into the Mississippi River. Last summer, our group participated in water testing of the Cedar River. We worked with the Isaac Walton League, Mm -hmm. and we collected almost 500 water samples. And of those 500 water samples, 70% had E. coli contamination, which exceeded human health standards for body contact, which is swimming, wading, boating, and so forth. And that means that, I mean, the numbers were off the charts, 10 10 and 20 times the state standard. And so the rain, this indicates to us that the rain is flushing E. coli on the land and into the tile lines and into the ditches and so forth. And we see the problem. We see the manure that is spread on frozen land. We see manure that's puddling um, in, the, in the field. And so the concern is we talk an awful lot about all these problems, but we never talk about the industry and what the industry can do to change uh, the factory farm model. And, you know, we didn't have these problems 30 and 40 years ago. Yeah, Sonia, let me bring this back to Clay because we were talking about the political debate. Clay, I'm sure this comes where the industry is on this comes up at the state legislature. Yeah, it does. And as we're having this conversation about uh, regulation, we did get a tweet uh, from Laura at Des Moines Waterworks saying, Regulation is why we don't make speed limits or drunk driving laws voluntary. Instead, society uses regulations to establish uh, expected standards of conduct. Mm -hmm. And this is that right there is a lot of times what you're hearing from more. uh, We'll call them environmental uh, lawmakers or from from people that have the ear of uh, some of the Democrats that are on some of these natural resources committees and agriculture committees is, you know, there needs to be more regulation. Uh, and at this point, it is down to the state level. I did a piece uh, late last year uh, about, uh, you know, after the Des Moines Waterworks lawsuit, uh, what's next in this this conversation. And the EPA administrator at the time, Scott Pruitt, he's not there anymore, but he said, you know, I'm in favor of states 
having this regulation. It's not going to change at the federal level. Right. Uh, call here from Troy in Iowa City. Hey, Troy, welcome. Hi. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Uh, th- thank you very much. Uh, here, here's what I think, unfortunately. Uh-huh. The Des Moines Water Works has sued because of the high nitrate level, but that was in the wintertime, and the, the result, what they were seeing was dead crops, not dead crops, but leaves and stuff that fell in the river that turned into nitrates. In the Sarah, um, what cover crop in Iowa is going to grow when we have six inches of snow on the ground? There's no nothing going to grow in Iowa, because if you can, please tell me, because there is no crops. And the, the, the reason why we have hay here in Iowa is because we feed our, our animals hay during the winter times because nothing grows. And if you people out, out east think you can do better, please come out to Iowa, buy a, you know, a $10, $10 million farm, which isn't very big, buy a, you know, a $100,000, $200,000 tractor, uh, buy $60,000 worth of corn, or uh-huh. whatever you want to grow, and good luck, because people in Iowa or the farmers in Iowa are not getting rich, and they are protecting their land because they don't want their land being run off into the river because each inch of, of dirt means money in their pocket. So okay, that's why Troy. They're doing cover crops. I'm I'm a little tight on time, but I thought there was something directed at Sarah. Sarah, do you do you want to weigh in here? I would love to work with Troy uh, to help <laughs> him yes. plant a cereal rye cover crop. So there are plenty of plants that grow in the winter time. Winter small grains, for example, grows over the winter, and under the snow, we'll have cattle with their nose push the snow off. And a well-insulated snow cover actually leaves the cover crop green below. Um, so there are plenty of plants that we grow in a wheat, winter triticale. There's plenty of things we could grow over the wintertime. Um, and we used to do that, you know, in the 1970s and previously. So it's, it's not like we can't. And, Troy, I am here in Iowa, and I do work with farmers even around the Iowa City area. And if you drive along the highway in April next spring, you will see it on Highway 80. There were large fields of winter cover crop actually uh, that greened up this spring. Clay, a, a question here from Twitter who's, uh, from a listener who asks, can someone comment on the paper recently published showing a significant increase in nutrient loading since the Iowa nutrient uh, reduction strategy began? We, are, are the facts right there? Say it again, the, the increases. He's saying the significant increase in nutrient loading since the nutrient reduction strategy began. Since there's a new paper out on this. I, I'd throw that to Jamie. I think that uh, is that research there from Iowa State University. Jamie, is that right? That that research was, if, if it's the, the paper I'm um, familiar with, was uh, Chris Jones and, and others with uh, okay. the University of Iowa yeah. and the, the Flood Center and IIHR. And um, they were focused on nitrate there. And the time period that they were looking at was uh, farther back uh, from uh, before the nutrient reduction strategy started up until about two years in. So while I, uh, you know, that, that research um, tells us that our nitrates are trending higher, um, I feel like it's not quite the right context to use uh, to, uh, to say that the nutrient reduction strategy is not working. Um, okay. I think all of us, you know, we have a, a monitoring strategy 
uh, as part of the way that we track progress for the nutrient reduction strategy. We also track the number of practices implemented and change in human behavior and awareness, knowledge, and then also changes in inputs of human and financial resources. So there's a a, a very comprehensive way that we're monitoring and tracking. So, you know, I, I th- they're, they're two separate issues. They're related, but that uh, paper wasn't an um, one-to-one re- response, I guess, to tracking the, the success of the nutrient Good. reduction strategy. I really appreciate the, the context on that. Sarah, I have about two minutes here, but I, I want to ask you whether you think if progress is not being made quickly enough, whether... I mean, that really does at some point, I don't know, a change in the legislature, a change in who is governor of Iowa, whether that is going to open the door to, you know, mandatory regulation, that, that we're heading for a place where if we can't see enough progress, farmers are going to be forced to be accountable to some regulation that they may not like. We definitely aren't progressing at the pace that we need to. I mean, we're at 750,000 acres of cover crops, and we need 16 million acres plus hundreds of thousands of bioreactors and saturated buffers to get to that 41% reduction. So it's definitely not a partisan issue because Dems and Republicans, uh, I think, both don't want ag to be regulated, but we could influence the way we give uh, credit to farmers. We could influence the way ag business rewards farmers or crop insurance rewards farmers. We could change some things in the system to incite a different behavior on the farm. Sarah, Jamie, thank you so much. I mean, for your experience and, and your insight on this. Really good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And Clay, thank you. Thanks, really good Kurt. to have you yeah. across from here uh, here at Iowa Public Radio. We'll be at WWNO in New Orleans, and I hope you'll listen in to Flyover.